I think for privileged people, especially right now being challenged in ways that they haven't historically been challenged, it does feel like an us-them dynamic. And so I think as allies, we got to find ways for people to safely land in all of this. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the All Inclusive podcast. Happy New Year! We're in 2024 and we're starting this new season of the All Inclusive podcast with an amazing guest, Julie Kratz. Julie is a TEDx speaker, inclusive leadership trainer and founder of Next Pivot Point. Julie has dedicated her career to fostering allyship in the workplace and today she's sharing all of her invaluable insights with us we delve into the true meaning of allyship, distinguishing genuine from performative allyship and navigating the challenges of inclusivity in the workplace. Julie also discusses the crucial role of white men in diversity, equity and inclusion, engaging middle management and handling budget cuts impacting diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. As always, before jumping into the video, make sure to hit that subscribe button, turn on your notification bell and follow on your favourite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. That being said, let's jump in. Hi, Julie. Hi. Hi, Natasha. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you once again for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So let's kick things off. Tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what led you to become passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Uh, well, I started my business focused on DEI about nine years ago, and it's called Next Pivot Point. And our purpose is to help leaders better understand inclusion and to facilitate inclusive experiences. So ideally, everyone feels a sense of belonging, which is sadly not the current state of most workplaces. Um, I spent 12 years in corporate myself, and that was really an inspiration for my work as I didn't quite put my finger on it. We weren't talking about belonging or psychological safety or, you know, all the issues that women were facing, let alone folks of color and others, uh, intersectional identities at the time. But it was really the lack of inclusion that led me to leave myself. And I thought, that's such a shame. We shouldn't have to leave. Uh, we should create workspaces that people want to stay at. So that's really been the inspiration for this work and continues to inform our research, books, um, talks that we give on the subject, um, and really focusing on allyship because it's really important that people understand, you know, it's not about saving the day. It's not about rescue capes. It's about really intention of standing with somebody and empathizing and being vulnerable and listening to the stories and collecting information and sharing it with others to spread allyship. So that's our life's work, and um, it's it's really exciting, especially now, um, the crosshairs of it all to mm. see the shakeout and you know where people are at and their journey. No, no, yeah, I I totally um, I can totally see that it is it's exciting times, I guess if if that's the way to put it. <laughs> um, well, the good news is people are committed; they're really committed right now, mm-hmm. and those that were not committed to begin with are long gone. It's not for everybody. There's plenty of non-inclusive places to work. Yeah. If that doesn't want to be a focus to you, have at it. Mm. But committed. They're not really in it. Exactly. So let's dial it back to the basics. You touched on it, allyship. Um, 
what does that mean to you? Yeah, allyship really is about leveraging your privilege, your power for good. And so thinking about the unearned advantages that you've had, you know, for me, for example, that has been you know, being white in the conversation about racism, right? I'm not directly impacted by it, but of course we all are. But when I use my privilege to speak into anti-racism work, my voice is heard a little differently as an ally. Right? It doesn't feel self-serving the way other folks, unfortunately, might be perceived. The same goes for folks that um, are non-disabled, talking about disabilities and you know, a quarter of the world's population has a disability. What a shame to not elevate that issue, especially in the workplace where it's largely underrepresented. Um, LGBTQ plus, you know, here in the US, there's a ton of terrible legislation that's being passed against um, the community. And so how can we stand up against these issues as allies? And it's really understanding where you have power and privilege and then listening to marginalized groups and, and finding a way to genuinely support it over time. It's not a one and done. It's not a check the box. You know, that's more performative where we're doing it as a performance to get the credit Allyship's the long journey and it's about doing it, especially when it's not easy. I agree. I think for me, it's it's very much about like empathizing with with that particular underrepresented group or community and actually taking some action towards towards creating that change or to, towards kind of making an impact in order to ensure that they feel included and that we're all kind of in it together. I feel like at the moment when allyship is talked about, there is this performative and genuine kind of action, like the two. Um, what would you say differentiates and how can we differentiate between somebody who's kind of just a performative ally um, and just one that's actually genuine? This, this is a genuine ally and they want it to actually help us. Yeah, great question. So performative allyship, the biggest difference is that is it's self-serving, right? It's it's usually a one-time only, ebbs and flows with the news cycle. It's, it's opportunistic. It's often a self-proclamation. You can't call yourself an ally. You know, it's really in the eye of the beholder. And so somebody that's being a genuine ally, by contrast, might say things like, I'm striving to be an ally. I hope to be an ally. I'm committed to being an ally, knowing it's a journey, not a destination. And mm -hmm. so for me, I would never say I'm an ally for people of color. I can only imagine, you know, the fair eye rolling that would happen in regards to that. It, it's not about me. And so when we lose our ego as allies and realize I'm doing this because it's important and it's good for humanity, not for myself, or my self-interest, that's when genuine allyship is really differentiated. Mm, I love that. It's it's a journey. It's not a destination. I think that's quite a key a key point to remember when we're talking about allies. Um, but I am conscious that in some instances it it could be seen as, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Right. So if someone's like, oh, I am an ally, they could easily simply just be like, oh, no, I didn't mean it that way. Of course, I meant that I'm I'm trying, I'm striving to be a better ally. I, do you know what I mean? So it could be simply a play in words or they could. We do know that there's a lot of instances that have happened um, across what the past couple of months, even where you have 
organizations or individuals that you feel like they're trying they're trying to do well they mean well but it just doesn't land well (laughs) so what would you what advice would you give to those that are listening that are trying to be better allies and they are conscious of if they say something in the wrong way that it's going to be taken in the wrong way what 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 can they do to avoid that or what do they do once they've done that yeah i think it's the longer you're gonna stumble and bubble you absolutely will make mistakes in this conversation i've made a plethora of mistakes over the years and so when we make a mistake first and foremost we need to own it I made a mistake. I apologize without a but, an and, you know, some sort of disclaimer. Again, it's not about you and your feelings. So if you hurt someone else's feelings, then your job is to own it and apologize. And it's actually really hard in today's age. We don't see a lot of people owning it and setting that example. And so it's really vulnerable. Uh, so when you do make a mistake, because you absolutely will, own it apologize and then commit to being better. So here's what I learned from this. Here's what I'm going to do differently next time. And if you can have that dialogue, or if you don't know where, you know, if you're really confused about why what you said was problematic, you know, there's a lot of great resources online. You can find credible resources, credible uh, uh, underscore there, but don't put that burden on underrepresented groups to educate you. You know, if you say, you know, one nuance hear a lot about right now is, you know, person with a disability versus disabled person. You know, what's the difference between person first language and making the disability really central to their identity? You know, there's, there's, and I've used, I default to person first language, but I mirror, you know, what someone says. If someone says I'm an autistic person or I'm a disabled person, I will use that language with them. I tend to default to person first language because I've learned that that tends to be more inclusive, but not all of the time. You know, people have different preferences about how they want to express their identities. And so mirroring the language of the people we're working with is often central to being better. How do you think that like social media and what's happening in society impacts the way in which we perceive allyship and, and are then actually allies? Oh, for sure. We're totally influenced by that. You know, a recent example, um, Jennifer Aniston, uh, you know, famous U.S. actor, people recognize her from the show Friends, you know, just said like, oh, cancel culture. You know, she made, mentioned something about cancel culture being bad and how she was probably going to get canceled just for saying that. And can you imagine, you know, for folks of color, for folks in the trans community, folks of really marginalized communities, how problematic that sounds to come from a wealthy white privileged woman um cancel culture is real it's an accountability for bad behavior you know not everyone's a harvey weinstein by any means but if you make a mistake again own it it doesn't mean you're a bad person like get rid of that narrative in our heads we're human we are wired to make mistakes and so if we embrace failures mistakes as an opportunity to learn and grow instead of to be canceled or defensive yeah but that takes a shift in our culture and we're quite frankly not there yet Mm. and I think I think organizations as well are are scared of of making that mistake because of the council culture um but 
I think that it's important that we explain that we're not trying to catch you out. This is not, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like it's not, we're not waiting, sitting and waiting for you to make a mistake and be like, aha, see, we told you. you (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait to get somebody in trouble. Like rarely does that motivate somebody. But I think for privileged people, especially right now being challenged in ways that they haven't historically been challenged, it does feel like an awesome dynamic. And so I think as allies, we got to find ways for people to safely land in all of this. You know, a great example also in pop culture is Lizzo. Right. Lizzo has many different um, intersectional identities, but has been called out for unfairly treating some of her workers. Whether that's true or not doesn't really matter. But explaining it and creating grace and space for them to learn from the experience or for them to say, hey, here's what's true, here's what's not true. And rather than judge, how can we be curious to learn and grow from the experience? And so that's. And that's a hard place for our brain to stay because our brain loves recognizing patterns. It loves to judge. You're good. You're bad. But most of us are goodish people. Uh, we often say in the allyship journey, it's progress over perfection. So if we model that as allies, it's okay to you know be curious. It's okay um, to make mistakes. And when we model that, we we create grace and space for others uh, to also follow that model. So we know diversity equity inclusion the diversity part is about ensuring that we have diverse perspectives in the room and being an an ally or or kind of striving to be an ally is providing the opportunity for diverse perspectives to be present in that room and when you see it's not to to kind of speak up right so what what are your thoughts on because I'm conscious that we've seen a lot of white men for example are scared <laughs> I want to put it that's how I, I guess that's how I would put it oh, it's <laughs> true. they're scared um but what would you say on those white men being allies and the importance of actually also still having them in the room 100 percent you know if you think about corporate America um and, and recognizes the global audience but globally our leadership teams do not reflect and mirror the populations they hope to serve. You know, it's roughly 80% white men, presumably straight, cisgender, non-disabled. That is not the state of humanity. That is not what the global population looks like. So that's a disconnect. That's a big problem. That's exactly why we need them engaged in DEI work. It, the I is inclusion. Everyone's included. It's not just for people of color. It's not just for women. It's not just for folks with disabilities, et cetera. It's another one. So if we don't have people with the highest amount of power, privilege, wealth, status engaged in the conversation, then we're not going to get anywhere. Okay, we're going to go nowhere real fast, and that's what we've seen historically with DEI efforts. There's a plethora of research that supports the business case. I would call it the human case. Uh, certainly, the events of the summer of 2020, you know, it led to a surge in the work. But there's also often a step forward and often a step or two back, you know, with the current pushback and backlash that we're seeing right now by the, what I call the law of minority. I don't, you know, it's about 20% of the population that's creating a stir right now. So point being, we need white men involved. Please do not be scared. And again, be open to embracing vulnerability, 
making mistakes, being curious and asking questions when you don't understand something, your allies will help you. You don't have to do this alone. And DEI work is absolutely for you, just as it is genuinely for everyone. In your experience, you work with a, num a number of organizations on their DEI strategies, creating inclusive cultures. And you've also got a book on allyship in action as well. Um, from all of your experience, what would you say is key key steps that an organization or a leader can take in order to bring these white men on board? Well, first and foremost, define what DEI is and what it isn't. So this is a huge problem that we're seeing right now is I can, you know, consider it woke propaganda. People are confusing critical race theory as another acronym. I don't even know how people make these connections, but absolutely it's about social awareness. Um, but it is not it, it, CRT is not something that's traditionally taught in corporate settings. It's a higher ed learning program. So there's just a lot of misunderstandings, understanding the misunderstandings and clearing the air first. So here's what it is. Here's what it isn't. Here's why it's important to our organization. And the list goes on. Innovation, talent retention. There's some wonderful reasons we can pull out rather than lip service or the window dressing and the check the box like we've been perceived, unfortunately. And then What's the roadmap of activities? You know, I just was working with a client that has, you know, I, they're building their 2024 plans right now. What is the content? What are the learning topics? What are key objectives, right? And let's be proactive about mapping that out versus a lot of organizations like, oh, shoot, it's March. It's Women's History Month. What are we going to do? Mm. That looks as unintentional as it sounds, you know, when you put on an event like that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, oh, we're even doing this. Yeah, it doesn't, you lost an opportunity to win, be proactive, plan a curriculum. We call it bright-sized as an approach. You know, a small sprinkle. Hey, here's our monthly inclusion topic. We're going to talk about microaggressions. We're going to unpack what a microaggression is. We're going to talk about why it matters. And then we're going to talk about strategies to diffuse them in the moment. Great learning sequence, right? That could be some short videos. Ideally, leadership teams may be talking about it. Maybe there's even a scenario to practice. Lots of ways to engage folks. So have that strategy. We call it the what, the why, and the how, just like we would any other strategy in business. Get clear on that first, okay? And if you haven't done that yet, it's not too late. We're working with a lot of organizations that did a lot of great things over the years, but they realized like, oh, shoot, we forgot that why, and hmm, we haven't really planned proactively. That's okay. Start now. You can do that, and you can do that easily yourselves. And then once you have that strategy, really encourage senior leadership to get big on it. And this doesn't take a lot of time from them, but you know we're big on doing an assessment to figure out where are we, where are our gaps, right? So we're not solving for the wrong problems. Asking the leadership team, what is DEI helping us with? Like, what does success look like? So that we can really be intentional about the journey to get there. And then if some senior leaders don't have the skill set, like you said, they're like reading from a script. It's <laughs> a lot for white men. I get it, the fear factor. Working with them, to do, you know, a 360 assessment, you figure out where their landmines are, because if they start saying things that aren't consistent with the strategy or dodging questions or saying, oh, no, that's not really important, you've lost all credibility. Get the senior leadership team truly engaged and show them that this isn't an us versus them, right? This is, we want to help you lead more inclusively and you're going to get more from your teams and you're going to stay relevant long term. Mm -hmm. This is a big moment in talent right now where 
you know, you're not going to be able to continue to backfill positions with white men. Like <laughs> historically, maybe you've been able to do that. That is not what the workforce looks like anymore. And it will not look like that. And it will continue to shift and shift. And this is a pain point for leaders. That's what you're used to. The college degree, the X years of experience, the formal package. Yeah, good luck. Good luck finding those unicorns because they just don't exist like they have in the past. And we need to better reflect the societies and communities we hope to serve anyway. So this is just good for business in general. I couldn't agree more. The senior managers should be able to speak freely about the great work that's been going on rather than deferring their question to, oh, that's oh, that's HR. Oh, let me pass you to our, our chief diversity officer who handled that. Oh, let me pass you to our chief people officer. Whereas it should be a fully collaborative and kind of inclusive of everyone uh, I think everyone can play a role um I know we've spoken about senior leaders making sure that we've got their buy-in that they're they're invested in this what about middle managers because I do feel that we don't talk about very often about how DEI lands with with middle managers and what do we what are kind of the misconceptions would you say that that middle managers have when it comes to DEI that you found yeah yeah and I just wanted to build off a comment you said about everyone's job is DEI. You know, I loved a recent interview um, that Mattel did about the, the Barbie movie. The Mattel DEI person said, this isn't my job to drive this. This is the whole organization's job. And I actually hope five years from now, I'm out of a job because everyone's just doing this. Just to underscore. It is everyone's job. So to that point, it's absolutely middle management's job. But guess what? Right. Even if your organization is doing the right things at the senior leadership level, which a lot of organizations are not, there's still some naysayers on those. And even just one or two can be very disruptive. Mm. But even if you're doing a good job up there and your front lines are probably filled with marginalized and underrepresented people, because that's just the state of our workforce today. Yeah. But who's who's uh, who's in the magic middle? <laughs> those middle managers. Probably on average been in the workforce for about 20 years. Um DEI was another thing back then. Uh, but this were personal issues we didn't talk about place. Like I, I remember as somebody myself that would fit into that bucket, you know, being told stop thinking about being a woman and just get the job done. You know, it was like identity last, work first. Yeah. And that paradigm has shifted in the last 20 years. So the middle manager has been left out of the conversation has a lot of misunderstandings about it, has a huge, huge impact on the employee experience at a company. And so we're, if we don't attack that middle layer, and that attack sounds, that is probably a better word for that address. <laughs> uh, I don't like using violent language. <laughs> but and quit them with tools and information. And this doesn't have to be hard. You know, you don't have to do week-long <laughs> It's you know, perhaps we do some 360 work to figure out where, the, where their learning gaps are. And then we write a, a, you know, a prescriptive learning plan and hold them accountable through their performance review to get better at A, B, and C. And maybe we just focus on a couple priorities. Maybe psychological safety is not good on their team. Here's some tools to help you. Here's some coaching to support you and work through those ideas. You know, maybe they don't have a diverse team at all. And so they need to work on hiring and recruiting for a better diverse team. Well, how do I do that, right? Here's some tools, here's some resources to help. We're gonna measure you know, your new hires. Have you created a diverse pool of candidates? We're not gonna ask you to hire somebody less qualified and air quotes, I'm putting that in. 
but we want you to hire the most qualified candidate. And we also want to make sure that we have a diverse pool that probably hasn't been included in this. So how do you get creative about that? So in order to do diversity, we have to do work differently. And that means the status quo, kind of looking the other way for that. Oh, Bob's just like that. He didn't mean anything by it. He just grew up in a different time. Like, it's not okay. Like, that's not cool for Bob. That's not cool for anyone Bob works with. Like, oh, I stop know. accepting bad behavior. I know. I just hate that. <laughs> but Bob. I feel like everyone, everyone's had that, that Bob. <laughs> I think everyone's had a Bob. I had a, I literally did. And there's always been a colleague of Bob's saying the exact same response. Oh, don't worry. It's just that thing. I mean, sometimes I even catch myself. I know even about my grandmother sometimes, like some of the things yeah. that she comes up with, she's of a certain age, she's she's Caribbean. And even I find myself kind of thinking in the first instance, oh no, it's just her age. Like It's just how she's grown up. And then I'm like, actually, no, like this is not okay. Like we need to have a conversation with her as best as we can um given her mental capacity at the age that she's at but still at least try and address it I feel like yeah we need to move away from being this kind of dismissive um idea and 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 more about actually just saying oh you know what that wasn't okay <laughs> it's not okay <laughs> and here's why it's not okay and here's what you can do differently next time and you need to put that burden on allies to address the bombs of the world but if we don't call it out, it's better yet, call them in to be better, then we're basically telling everybody that this is okay behavior on our team. So all that stuff we were doing for DEI, well, if Bob can do it the other way, then everyone else can do it the other way. And that's that's not fair. People read into these things. Um, what I love about the future of G DEI is Gen Z, in particular, the younger generation entering the workforce. And they have tolerance for this stuff. I mean... I'd like to think my millennial generation also didn't have tolerance for it, but we kind of got conditioned to look the other way. Like you got these mixed messages, like, of course we're inclusive, but mm -hmm. we're not going to do this, this, and this. Gen Z's like, mm, no, I got a lot more power because there's a talent shortage and it's going to be one for a real long time. So I can say no to that. And I will vote with not just my dollars as a consumer, but my employment decisions. And we're in a gig economy where they can also just contract yeah. have to rely on corporate institutions like we had to in the past. So we're at a pivot point. If you want to be relevant in the future, get with it and be inclusive. I like the way that you said call in rather than it, it be a position of like calling out. I love that that you said it's calling them in. Um, I think that's, that's, that's a really great take. I borrowed that to give full credit. Uh, Loretta J. Ross has a wonderful TED Talk. I highly encourage everybody to view it. Um, but she talks about not calling people out. This is like blame, shamey. It doesn't feel good. It usually leads to like a really unproductive conversation. So call people in. Hey, Bob, when you said that, here's where, how I took it. Like, let's think about how to do that differently next time. It, it doesn't have to be this first conversation. It can be a, usually, unless there's a repeat offender, that's a whole different thing. But a five minute circle back, it doesn't have to be in the moment either. Mm. So we've gone over all the different things that we should be doing, what we can do. Um, I, we know organizations budgets, they're getting tighter. So all of this great stuff can cost money. Can it not? What, what are your thoughts on that, Julie? I know. Well, and that's, that's the lip service thing. It's like, if you're not budgeting and resourcing DEI, everyone knows it's important. 
And then if you're slashing budgets and your training budget's the first to go, which is the first training budget to go, DEI training. This We've seen that in 2023. It started late last year. You know, if you think you're going to stay relevant by doing things the same tired way and not having an inclusive workforce, again, good luck. I, I think the runway is running out. Definitely in the next few years, you will you will struggle to have customers and employees. But for now, if you want to maximize stockholder returns and slash training budgets, sure, short-term strategy probably will work with the quarterly reporting cycle. For organizations that want to be in, in innovative in the long haul, you know, have a budget dedicated and not just the DEI person, right? And, I work with so many DA leaders like, yeah, I have this job, but I don't have any money. And it's like, so they have to like go to all these leaders to ask for money, which is like icky and gross. You, They need resources. They need tools. They can't create everything for the org. And that's not a good idea to create your own things. Don't reinvent the wheel. There's wonderful content that be curated from subject matter experts. And so I think about reasonable budgets depend on employee size. So when we're working with you know an employee base of less than 100, they're not going to have a DEI person. They, they're they lucky to have a, an HR person that's not buried, especially if they're growing. So they probably need still a sizable budget. And it doesn't have to be, you know, here in US dollars, you know, 20K, you know, that that can resource, you know, some activities, um, maybe get you some facilitated events even. As you start to climb up though in the hundreds, especially to 500, that's when we start to see that people invest in diversity officers, diversity leaders, Ideally, that person's on the C-suite as well so that they have power and authority in budget and resources. That budget can vary wildly based on what an organization's already done and where they're going. But global organizations, you know, once you get up to like the 100K mark, they're, they're resourcing, they're spending quite a bit of money on this. Most of the global organizations I'm working with, they know about environmental social governance, ESG, mandates that are coming down in early 2024. And so they're getting ahead of it. They're doing pay equity studies. They're getting representation reporting uh, in, a, in a systemic way. So it's less cumbersome. And they're making sure they're doing the right activities and tracking it. So again, it depends on employee size. I just oversimplified it with those three buckets. Key thing is resource this now to stay relevant later. I've so much enjoyed our conversation. I should have. I feel like I could talk to you for so much longer. You've got so much knowledge. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Before you do leave us, I would love to get one piece of parting advice from you for the aspiring allies out there and for those that are striving to be better allies. Yeah, I think one key thing I'd underscore is it is a journey. It is not a destination and progress over perfection. Do not worry about getting this work perfect. It will look inauthentic. Be you. Be authentic. Oh, I love it. Oh, thanks again, Julie. And for those that are listening, if they want to connect with you, how best can they do that? Yeah. Um, easiest way to find me, uh, LinkedIn. I post very regularly. I'm also a Forbes columnist, so you can find me there. Um, Julie Kratz, J-U-L-I-E-K-R-A-T-Z. And then nextpivotpoint.com. Great place for a lot of free resources. You can actually on our homepage download a free inclusion guide on how to have an inclusive meeting. So that can get a conversation started right away. I invite you to do that. Um, and then Allyship in Actions, our latest book. So really, um, it's a field guide. It's here are the 10 practices of an ally. 
here's how to practice, assess them. And here's some workbook um, activities also to practice using it real time. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to be putting links to all of those resources that you've mentioned down below for anyone who is listening. Do please do check it out. Um, Julie, you're amazing. Appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. Continue, please, please continue. <laughs> Even when you feel that if you I cannot. Didn't give up this year, yeah, if, if I didn't give up this year, I'm not going to give up. This has been a rough year nine. And I'm like, how is this happening right now? It's just odd. Um, but those that are in it are in it for good. We have cleared the air on who was not committed. So we will absolutely still be here, Natasha. Oh, fantastic. Well, wish you all the best for the future, Julie. And hopefully we can talk again soon. Yes. Awesome.